welcome to this edition of The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossain, and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. One of the things I love most about working at PI is that we get to work with incredible organizations across the world. Our partners are non-governmental organizations who are extraordinary leaders in their countries and regions and globally. And they teach us every single day about how to better campaign and advocate for protections, whether it's in their country or elsewhere around the world. In recent editions of this podcast, we've had our partners from Chile, India, and Kenya. Today, we will hear about Colombia. We are joined by Juan Diego Casaneda from our partner organization, Charisma Foundation. Just to give you some background, Fondacion Charisma is a civil society organization that, in their words, are dedicated to supporting and disseminating the good use of technologies in digital environments, social processes, and public policies in Colombia and the region, all with a human rights focus. When we look back on this pandemic, we will recognize some large trends. And that could be the vast inequality, that could be the poor infrastructure that existed, the poor health conditions that existed in many places. But there are two that I want to explore today. First, the pandemic hit different parts of the world at different times with different tempos and different trajectories. Every region, country, even city, grouping of societies have been hit in their own unique ways. And Colombia is one of the key examples of having had a very challenging pandemic when you put it in the context of the politics, the shocks, and the historical context as well. Second, though, is that it had tech. That played differently in different places and conditions and at different times. The tech in many parts of the world started initially as comms metadata being used to track people. And then it moved to GPS to track people even worse, I guess, or even better, depending on how you look at GPS. And then it turned to GPS in order to put people under home arrest, essentially. And then it moved to apps and Bluetooth, profiling and databases, ridiculous use of temperature sensors, and then waste analysis, even advertising data, social media platforms, and then the use of data brokers. And so I'm particularly interested and happy to have Juan Diego join us because the Charisma Foundation in Colombia has been at the forefront of these issues. And you'll hear from Juan Diego about how he's co-written a study on COVID apps that is beautifully entitled. And I look forward to, in this podcast, hearing that fuller picture from Juan Diego. Useless and dangerous a critical exploration of COVID apps and their human rights impacts in Colombia. That's just, it just beautifully encapsulates <laughs> so much of government response globally. But I am curious, were there national drivers or motivations or inspirations that made you want to do this work? Well, I, I guess it is a shared situation, I guess, for most of us in which you see politicians and um, policymakers thinking about tech solutions whenever something really bad happens or whenever public pressure is on. For example, nowadays we have in Bogota the issues of security again. So a lot of mugging, um, assault with you know, like guns and all that stuff. So then they go back to think about uh, surveillance cameras and you know, like a smart 
whatever you want, smart whatever, right? Smart cameras, smart uh, police cars, smart I don't know, there was even a building with a lot of cameras, thermal things, and then people were complaining to, to the mayor of the city of Medellin, which we're going to talk about, saying, like, you need two police or, you know, like a full squad to defend that thing from people, you know, <laughs> stealing the cameras and stealing the hard drives or whatever you have there. So the first thing is that, you know, like when things are problematic and complicated, there is always someone saying, like, yeah, I have a tech solution for that. I can sell you the solution. So that was the first thing. And because they were really trying to, I guess, in a way of a competition to compare Colombia with other countries and to uh, say like, yeah, we do have an app for that. We do have a, like a national solution for this, which didn't work. But that's kind of the first thing that happens here. And yeah, it, it obviously compels us to explore this critically, as the report says, and, and to think about it. And in reading the report, what surprised me immediately was that the president of Colombia announced an app on March 7th, 2020. Now, it, like March 7th of 2020, there was barely a pandemic. Most countries were still operating as if nothing was going on. Like in the United Kingdom, we didn't start locking down until March 20-something. And uh, we at least waited a few more days after that before we started talking about an app. But the president of Colombia immediately out of the starting gates on the idea of an app. That's just is this typical of just rushing for that tech solution for complex problems or was it something innovative? Yeah, that's interesting because we were not that surprised. I guess this speed was a thing, right? But having this particular president announcing these type of things like innovative and tech-driven solutions is not that interesting for us. We expect uh, him to do these kind of things. What I'm saying is that Colombia is having this complicated political situation, obviously, as many other countries, but... Well, you know, we had one of the oldest guerrillas of the world and we just are going through a peace process. And part of this peace process has been debated between, you know, what kind of government we want to have. We want one that kind of supports the peace process or someone that puts the peace process in its right place. Right. That would be like kind of the right wing uh, discourse on the peace process. So. This president is the second type, right? Is one that wants to make a minimal peace process with not a lot of concessions to uh, human rights defenders, to the history of the country, to like agrarian reform, that kind of stuff. So he came through at the end of 2018. We had a massive protest in which some people died and some people died from riot squad actions. That was in November 2019. So that put him in a place uh, a complicated place politically speaking, right? So when the pandemic hit, he wanted to demonstrate some kind of results. The other thing is that he's got a particular position in his government called the the Administrative Department for a President. And then it was later transformed into the Economic and Technology Assistant for the President. And this particular position, a guy called Victor Munoz, he he was really relevant for making this this happen. And he's got this tech mind too. So that explains in a way how come it was so quick. Fascinating. Okay. And early on in your report, you have this table of all the apps. <laughs> and there were many apps. And this table also shows the multiple purposes of these apps. And I think depending on where the listeners are, they'll recognize an element of this problem. But 
generally, I would say, where apps have worked out, possibly the UK is one example, and there's a few other countries, these apps tended to have a singular purpose, Mm -hmm. whether it's contact tracing or an app for notifying about symptoms. But not only did Columbia have like half a dozen, if not even more than that, many of them competed for multiple functionalities. Yes, absolutely. Even though the president wanted to have one app to rule them all, in the end, uh, he got into a conflict, let's say, with the, how do you call it, cities and departments. So Colombia, we have like a president regime, but we have departments and they all have their governors and then you have cities and they have mayors, right? So some cities, some big cities launch their own apps. Some governors launch an app for their departments. And then you have the, the national app. So... It was a little bit of a of a yeah tug of war between the between the national and the regional levels, which in the end the national level lost. Not that the regions gained anything, or may, they gained something, but not what we think. Not health action, but their apps did more than what the national app made, and in the end uh, they were more important for the people in the region. So yeah, the first thing that we concluded from analyzing all these apps is that. We had this issue between the national and the and the regional level, and they didn't coordinate well, and the apps exploded. We counted more than two dozens of apps from many places with different functionalities, and it was yeah, it was getting out of hand. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize there was that many. So you actually cut down the list in your report, and then yep. your report also does a really nice job because the timeline matters, but also our understanding of the pandemic uh, and of COVID itself, these things all evolved and public health officials started to get involved in the tech questions. And so as, as I was reading the report, I could see some of these apps were led by the technology departments of government. And some of these apps were actually informed by public health officials. In this whole tug of war you just described, did it end well for the public health argument? Yeah, you can say there's a second contrast here, which is between the tech and the health departments between any level of government. So it didn't end well for the health departments, but just because, you know, they got an intruder, let's say, right, which is the tech, you know, the techie came there uh, to the hospital and tell them how to do things. And they were just trying to manage the pandemic in some kind of way. Because in the end, what happened, for example, with the national app, try to collect information kind of in the opposite way in which the national health system collects information. Colombia is one of these countries when you have a lot of other diseases like Zika, the yellow fever, chikungunya, there have been many other crises. So we kind of have, as experts said, good teams of contact tracing, like the traditional, let's say, contact tracing. And it was not a big surprise for the health system to do the contact tracing. They had their methods, they had the ways to do that. And maybe it was more a surprise for our countries, right? But but we had this established in a way. And then the tech guys that kind of didn't never had to deal with these solar diseases, they thought they could do, you know, like what other countries were doing to just solve this with an app. But the tech didn't win. Their solutions proved to be wrong or not fit or useful for the health organization in Colombia in just in a very general sense. And I want to tease that out just a little bit more because like the expertise that existed in Colombia already around contact tracing, if I understand correctly from your report, it was 
contact tracing is a very manual process. There were even cards being filled out. And that has always been my understanding of contact tracing as well. It is a, you ask the person who is unwell, who have they interacted with and the places they've interacted with. And the contrast with the tech approach is that, and we've seen this in other countries, the tech approach is, well, let's just not ask people. Let's just get the data that may exist through non-consensual mechanisms and make sense out of that and almost trust that data more than we would ever trust just by asking people. And this was captured in your report where at one point, at least I guess this must be on the um, the Android version of the app, it went from, say, nine permissions to like this massive list of permissions it was asking for from the operating system, not from the individual and it just became a ridiculous laundry list of data that I, I struggle to imagine how that's actually useful in combating COVID, but it's the available data as provided by the tech, which is the tech-driven view, isn't it? Absolutely. And what you say is so true, not only for the contact tracing apps that happened here, but also for any sort of tech-driven solution, I guess. This distance between uh, the government and the people, it seems like they hate people in a way. Like they don't want to know about them. They don't want them to talk. They don't, you, I don't want you to come to my office. I don't want you to send forms. I, I just want to know you from a very long distance, right? Through all sorts of representations, translations of data, assumptions, predictions, but we don't want to be closed, right? So the only app that really worked was one called Coronap Medicos or Doctors Coronap or the Coronap Pro. That was kind of the name. And what it did is just sped up the process of filling the forms they use for manual contact tracing. It really worked. They could do more contact tracing. They, they sped up the process of contact tracing. And that was all. They don't want it to do any fancy thing with Bluetooth and automatic anything. And it worked. The other ones were really far away from people and they wanted to know people from a very long distance. They were not about health. So many of these apps were more about social control and expenditure control for the governments than for properly managing the, the pandemic. Tell me more about that. Go into that, please. Well, the first thing is that the other really strong apps that we analyzed thoroughly, they were... Medellin Mequida, which is one in the city of Medellin, is kind of one of the biggest cities. Then you have Valle Corona, was another app mainly deployed in the city of Cali. And lastly, Bogota, the app from the city of Bogota. We had like four apps, the national and these three other regionals. When you see, for example, the case of Medellin, the main goals of the app were not only monitoring the crisis, but also making a register of people that deserved aid. From the government. And in doing so, they made a registry that we haven't seen before, which is a registry of people, their families, and their relationship between workplaces. So this kind of triangle between the individual, the family, and the workplace was uh, the way they try to control people. And one of the examples is they could cancel people's metro cards through the analysis of data and you know, like saying these people come from uh, this neighborhood that is has really high levels of contagion. So we are going to cancel the metro cards so they can travel. Oh, no way. Wow. All this through the use of different databases and the connection of different databases. So what they wanted to know is a lot of information. They want to gather all the information they could from people in order to manage them and control them. And in this sense, 
we had people really feeling the stigma of belonging to a neighborhood that is called by the government like a high contagion risk. And many people working on the informal sector, they just go to sell coffee on the streets. Their food depends on this type of work. Uh, they couldn't go to work or they couldn't exit their neighborhoods because they had military. All of these, the product of data analysis and the gathering of data. So that was one thing. But another like really blunt example of this uh, happened in Cali, in which the app had uh, the geolocation capabilities and they could use the geolocation of patients with a positive COVID test to see if they were in their homes. If they weren't, they deployed a COVID hunter team. That's how they call that. So you see videos on YouTube, you can you can check the videos. And in the in these videos, you have the police and you have the major sometimes going and talking to a person like, yeah, by your phone, we see you're out of your house. What are you doing? No, I'm buying whatever or whatever. They, they uh, throw the guy into, you know, like these Toyotas and they drive away with them. They could also find people for leaving their quarantine places. And they use the geolocation capabilities of the phone to do that. You can see that better on certain types of population, on certain types of trades that people do, because they were more affected by these forms of control. But in the end, let's say Medellin was, was a really good example of how you, you really want to control the whole society by making them belong to a certain registry. For example, in Medellin, to, in order for you to work, you had to be registered uh, with an employer, right? And the employer must have registered you as part of the business or the enterprise, whatever, the factory. And uh, you have to be registered previously by your family, right? So register should match to allow you to go to work. Because in the end, these apps, the way in which they mean they were trying to control the crisis was to, you know, the, the, the usual balance between the economy, let's say the economic activities and the uh, protection of people and public health. So these apps were right in the middle saying like, we need to have legitimate reasons for people to leave their houses. And the apps were a way to control that during the quarantines, instead of doing anything related to, to health. Like if you see, they didn't like try to give people any kind of advice. Some of them have that, right? Like obviously wash your hands, that kind of stuff. But they were not focused on health and the protection of people and communities. They were focused on controlling how people move during the quarantines. It became controlling and enforcement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And were people forced to have these apps on their phone? It's interesting because the national app, there were so many ambiguous expressions of the regarding the obligation of, of the use of the app. So in one part, they said like it's optional. Then, you know, like paragraphs later, they say they must have the app. So it was not clear in the end. And I think it was a clever way to avoid any lawsuits, any constitutional challenges against the app. Because in the end, you, you couldn't prove like there is a legal obligation that says yeah, you have to install the app if this or that, right? So what you had was more like a soft and not soft, obviously, like not legal enforcement of the use of the app. For example, people going to the airport, they were kindly invited to install the app or else you can lose the flight, right? Or you cannot go in, right? For people on the street, if a policeman was asking, you know, like, if you have to prove what are you doing outside your house, you have to use the app in some in some cases. Yeah, and I wanted to pick up on that because um, in your report, you mentioned there's this mobility passport. Like, I know that the way that 
COVID enforcements worked across the world. Some countries did require this, but I was wondering if you could just describe what is this mobility passport? I don't think everybody in the world encountered this idea that you need permission to leave your home. So you have the general prohibition of going out of your house during quarantine. But you have exceptions, right? Like, for example, doctors or people working in hospitals. They need to go out. So they have to prove in one way or the other that they are part of this group exempted from the quarantine. So how do you prove that to a, a police agent that is enforcing these obligations? Some places, they opted to do this through the apps. For example, Medellin was really heavy on these. And then you have like 42 exemptions by the national decrees. So it was kind of messy, right? And and that's part of what they wanted to govern and organize through the apps, right? Like, how can you prove you can be outside and a police agent should not find you? You know, people were like committing crimes just by being outside. the chaos of normal life and even normal life under a pandemic and then there is the order that these systems try to impose and it's not just whether there'd be an app or not but like as you're just talking about the registries that your employer has and the family composition and this data i wonder if this fell particularly hard on specific populations and like you do highlight early on that vulnerable communities were most affected. I was wondering if you can tease out some of that. Yeah, I really like the way you said it because, yeah, when you have this, you know, like messy reality and, you know, like anxiety, I guess, you know, like the general anxiety of people, for example, criticizing others through their windows. You know, we have little stores in neighborhoods and you could see people maybe gathering there for a chat, you know, and people, you know, are in the window saying like, oh my God, what are you doing there? So you have this anxiety, right? And then you want a little bit of control and people being responsible, but also, you know, carrying out things like grocery uh, shopping. So you have this order, right? And they had to make categories and registers and reasons to be registered, reasons to be exempted, all that stuff. So this could work, right? And in this order, in this categorization, there was obviously people bound to be excluded from the order from one way or the other. So what happened, for example, imagine, which is kind of, I guess, the worst case we have here, is that you must, for you to say that you were working, you have to have your employer saying that you were working. And for your employer to have you enrolled on their registry, you would have to be part of a family, uh, being registered there, you know, like as a family, an individual part of a family. So when people worked independently, but, you know, like not as contractors, service provider, you know, any kind of that kind of stuff, but selling uh, things on the street. This is a big difference, I guess. It would be interesting for people to know. Yeah, Like many countries, I guess, Colombia, one of them, we have a lot of people selling things on the street. So the first time I went to Europe, I was baffled, you know, like I, I was a teenager, but, but I saw like nobody was selling, you know, cigarettes or candy on the street, right? And if you wanted a cigarette, you had to buy the whole thing and it was really expensive. Okay, so we have people here that they sell cigarettes by, you know, like the units, uh, they sell candies, they sell water, whatever. And also uh, they sell coffee. So many people actually live from that and they really get the little income they have from these activities. So they couldn't register in the app 
because they were not formally employed anywhere. And the government knows that. And the government knows that, yes. Of course they know that. And they, they I mean, they should, I guess, or you expect them to know that when they are designing this. But it seems they were thinking about, you know, like this model citizen that wants to stay home because they want to protect public health and going out is kind of a moral defect, uh, like a moral issue, like a moral problem you have. Because you don't want to follow the rules and you want to, you know, make this crisis bigger. But there were people that actually had to go out. So these were people in the informal sector and they were excluded by design. So what happened to them was they had to face the police and ultimately they had to face the military to have a right to go out. And this is where you see, we quoted some videos they are available on YouTube of police agents like choking people, choking old people, you know, like selling candies uh, on the street and uh, taking the the whole, you know, like tray of candies and all that stuff. Uh, a lot of violence. There was one guy I remember, particularly one guy killed on the street, a young man killed by police agents here in Bogota. So you have, on the other hand, this, this empowerment, let's say, of the police to see everybody on the street as a potential threat, as a potential deviant from the moral obligation to stay at home. And um, this is kind of the result that they couldn't understand and they didn't understand by design how these people uh, were allowed or should be allowed or there would there should be some kind of help for them. The other thing was that, well, if the government wanted to control these people, they did send some help and they instated some programs, they created some programs of social help. But then when these programs didn't work, the aid didn't arrive, the money didn't arrive, the groceries and everything they promised they were going to give to these people didn't arrive. People want to protest. And then the squad riot actually came uh, to control yeah. the people yeah. protesting the government. So, Yeah. And we've seen from outside the news from Colombia over the past few months has been around public protests and government clampdowns. And your explanation really helps tease out like this is about the pandemic. It is a reflection of the pandemic. And even the way you started talking about the president getting into the COVID response in March 2020 with an app, it was a reflection of the previous challenges he was facing. You can't extract the political environment from the pandemic response. And being an outsider, my understanding of Colombian history is that it is it is dark and it and it, it has its even darker moments. Where do you think this is all heading now? Is there a happy ending, or is this just a a continuation of the political challenges through other means called the pandemic? Do we feel like the pandemic in Colombia is reaching a a point? where you can go back to focusing on other issues? Or is the pandemic just yet another focal point of those other issues? No, that's that's right. Um, at the beginning of this year, we kind of had what many people said this was the continuation of these protests that started in 2018. And the protests are kind of basic in the sense of the 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 bottom line uh, demands from people doing this, which is more social security, access to education, access to health. There are obviously some opposition to these right-wing policies against the peace process, against the recognition of uh, victims and the wrongdoings of the military and the state on itself. So this is this is part kind of like, yeah, a really uh, short 
way to say what, what is happening, why people are protesting. But um, the pandemic, I guess people thought, yeah, obviously the government was really clumsy on the management, particularly on the vaccines. The rollout of vaccines in Colombia has been really slow. And there are many people that they don't have their second shot just because Colombia could acquire. And there are a lot of politics. I, I think obviously there's a more complex explanation beyond the incompetence of Colombian officials. But I guess people, or we all interpreted the, the pandemic as, a, as an external agent. But when people were protesting, it was more about the conditions that came before the pandemic, right? So these high levels of informal work, this lack of organization from the state to deliver some public goods. So when you have people, for example, that they don't have water on their neighborhoods or they don't have uh, electricity, it was worse for them because they were also forced by police threat to stay in their homes, right? So I, I don't think they even thought so much about the pandemic on itself, like the virus and what is the situation we're in. It is more like we're in a very vulnerable situation and the pandemic has made it worse. But it's not going to go away when the when the pandemic ends, if it ends or the way it ends, right? So many people, I don't think they have felt something has changed, has changed in that sense. And it doesn't seem that they, they, they will. The government is on their last year of government. This president is on its, his last year. Oh, no. You're adding an election to this whole mess. Yeah. Next year we have elections. And it seems it, it is clear to us that the government has, they are more radical on their distance and indifference from people. So in many of the things we work on, tech policy, we, we don't have a lot of ways to talk with the government now because they don't have any good reason to please uh, civil society or to engage with you know like people. So that I think is important because in the end, they will try to save what they did during the pandemic. They will try to say they did things in a good way. They did what they could. And they're going to play down the importance of the economic and, and social situation and conditions people have here that they don't relate strictly to the pandemic. This is not going to be an easy exit if there is an exit. And I'm sorry to hear that for everybody in Colombia. But I think it's interesting, for example, that you see the reactivation of economy. And we've been doing this during this year when we, I think we have had even higher peaks than the last year. So last year we were all like, as we were saying, like anxious about, you know, what is going to happen with the COVID. But then now we have like, we are tired of that. We need to go out. We need to, you know, like people, depending on, rest, for example, restaurants, bars, uh, they have been really pushing for opening. Even when we have a big number of people getting COVID, the thing is that vaccines had, had helped. So obviously it helps to reduce the sanctions and to reduce the, the measures, but that's kind of the situation. But the point is that this political discussion, I guess, was just paused by the by the COVID. I guess that's one way to interpret all this. It was just paused and we had the COVID and we thought about the COVID and then we went back to what we were thinking about in, in 2018. Yeah, and to have a slightly different angle on that, where we're not trying to refer to like capital R right and capital L left. But what I'm seeing as we unlock and as we go back to life, I'm seeing people in their daily lives struggle with their own thought patterns around, am I liberal? Am I conservative? When it comes to COVID and getting back to work, like 
I'll have a conversation with a family member where last week they were like, no, everybody's got to lock down and the government's crazy for letting us all out. And then a week later, they're saying, well, people have to get back to work so they can make livelihoods and we need to reopen bars and restaurants. And and so everybody's going through this incredible thought pattern and this development in a short period of time. And to add an election to it where politicians can appeal to our rebirthing of our political identities through our personal experiences rather than these grand narratives. But then they're going to try to grab onto it and pull us in different directions. I just feel like this is going to be a very, well, we're facing a new febrile environment politically as people reestablish and rebuild our societies. Absolutely. I think that confusion is very interesting. And we, we saw it here too, right? Like, even people that obviously think there is something wrong with the police for this amount of police violence we are having here, but they think like, how come people are out there, you know, like talking and going out. And one of the things I was thinking, you know, like this was not part of our report, but when you think about these many people had their homes made, designed, let's say, to have them only during, you know, like the night, the early morning, maybe during weekends, but I think there is a small number of people privileged, I think like me, and to have like a dedicated space to work and to have all these, you know, like things that go really well with working from home and uh, staying all day at, in your home. So when you have even police controlling that, it's it's a way of violence, a very deep structural violence because people, don't, they don't have their homes adequate for these long stays at home. And you have families, really big families, right? Uh, let's say 10 people living in a place that richer families in the same city, they live like three or two even. So that's one thing. But then when you have this confusion in Colombia, I guess the, the political debate hasn't been centered on the on the management of the pandemic. People should go out, people should stay in. It, it was more on a way uh, of the reactivation of economy and then on the other way on police violence because this is one thing when you see clearly a division between some politicians some condemn the police and they say police must be reformed the president like had, had the bright idea to change the uniforms of the police without making any other significant change to a police so now we had them in green which is kind of military yeah. and that is yeah. a surprise for people out of Colombia seeing them like with big like assault rifles or you know like big guns and then uh, you have this more civilian like in blue new uniform in response to blatant violence and and you know like people with their eyes out like people killed by the police but they changed the uniform right so this issue of the police reform I guess it's one of the ways in which you can tie the pandemic because the the violence that happened during the pandemic for the control of the pandemic was a way in which some politicians had made a difference. So let's say the right wing or the traditional parties supporting a really fierce stance against the guerrillas and the left and the communism, Chavism from Venezuela and Castro from Cuba, they say the military did nothing wrong. There are certain cases in which we have to review what the agents did, but in general, we are fine. And then you have other sides saying like, no, the police really needs a big change. They they can't be doing these things uh, forever. So I guess that is kind of the division we have here. Thank you so much for this. Like, it, it, That's what I love about our jobs. <laughs> you know, you can start off writing a report around apps, and it's so easy to get into the questions of permissions and Google, Apple, 
the Bluetooth, interactions. Yeah. And then you realize that you're actually instead telling the story of the structure of your societies and the inequalities that arise when you try to pretend that they're uniform. And then all of a sudden you realize you're talking about policing and injustice. And then you realize you're really talking about the political infrastructure as well as economic and social infrastructure of a country. And we're doing it all every single day. So thank you for so much for just giving us an insight or even a glimpse into what's been going on in Colombia and even just a little bit into what's going to happen next. So thank you for your time. We really appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you for having me. Good luck in the next stages for us all. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. You can get involved with this topic by visiting our website and seeing all of our COVID resources at privacyinternational.org. You can also, and I strongly recommend this, visit the Charisma Foundation website because it's just beautiful. Their use of graphics is just probably one of the leaders in civil society. Their website is at web.charisma, that's K-A-R-I-S-M-A dot org dot C-O. You can like and subscribe to this podcast on the various platforms you use. It's also available on our website at privacyinternational.org. And I would also say, although I don't speak Spanish, I've seen a lot of love for the podcast run by Charisma as well. Generally, come to our websites and sign up to mailings. And we're also on Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, YouTube, and Facebook. Thank you, and see you next time. The music is courtesy of Sepia. This podcast is produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International. <laughs> Let me take them out. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They were 30 minutes quiet. Yeah, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible.